Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with Episodio Numero 72. Today we look at a topic I thought of early on when I was brainstorming the initial short list of China History podcast topics. Today we focus on the Hong Kong triads with an emphasis on their historical background and what gave rise to these secret criminal organizations. This all goes back to the Qing Dynasty. And if you really want to trace it back ontologically, the road goes all the way back to the times of the secret White Lotus Society, the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. So we're going to take something of an historical overview of the whole triad thing. And sorry in advance to disappoint, but I am not going to get into all the uh, heavy-duty slicing, dicing, and chopping in this episode. Perhaps on another day, we'll come back and do an episode on historic acts of violence committed by the triads of Southeast Asia, and you'll get to hear all about Broken Tooth Koi, the Baron of East Jim Sajoy, Li Dai Hong, Five Fingers Fung, Two Nostrils Lee, Big Spender Jiang, and Wu Shi Hao. And who can ever forget Wu Sang Fang, Four Finger Wu of James Clavell Noblehouse fame. So let's just uh, go back into the mists of time and find out where these Chinese goodfellas came from and what their impact was on history and in Chinese society. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where this all started, but the whole notion of secret societies with all their rituals, secret handshakes, passwords, that whole idea goes back to biblical times, I'm sure. But in China, if we had to trace everything back to one particular time in history, I suppose we'd have to go to the time of the Kangxi Emperor. We discussed him in the Qing Dynasty Overview Part 1, podcast number 35. He was the second of the ten Qing Dynasty emperors, and he had the good fortune to reign during the good part of the Qing. Now, some say the whole thing began around the time of Kangxi, and plenty of experts will insist it was during the time of the uh, Qianlong Emperor. Suffice to say, early to uh, mid-Qing Dynasty. That's where the whole thing begins to take on a recognizable shape and form. The Manchus, being outsiders and all, you know, not Chinese, that is, they were always looking over their shoulders at the Chinese and saw a conspiracy and a potential coup d'etat behind every bush. The Kangxi Emperor openly went after the Buddhists and Taoists because they were the most notorious and the first to develop all these uh, secret organizations. These uh, secret societies weren't necessarily harmful or even anti-Qing, but nonetheless, if they couldn't be controlled or at least monitored by the Manchus, then preemptive action needed to be taken. So you can say Kangxi drove many of these brotherhoods, associations, societies, whatever, underground. And it's under these kinds of circumstances that these societies laid low and built their strength in numbers. This percolated a little, maybe for another century or so, and by the 1840s, when Hong Xiuquan began preaching his zany version of Christianity to the masses in Guangxi and lights the fuse that launches the Taiping Rebellion, this is where these secret societies truly expand and begin at last to morph into the rogues that we uh, know of today. And there came to be a certain organization. It was known as the Tian Di Hui. Tian, first tone, is heaven. Di, fourth tone, means earth, and hui, fourth tone, means society. The Heaven and Earth Society. 
Sun Yat-sen's father was a member, and Sun relied on their support quite heavily to fund his cause. I think I mentioned this in an uh, earlier podcast. Several men, all from Gaoshi Township in Jiangpu County, near the southernmost tip of Fujian Province, Zhangzhou Prefecture, that's where Fujian meets the western tip of Guangdong. This is a, about a two-and-a-half-hour car ride from Chaozhou to give you an idea how close these two legendary areas are. These men, they all got together at the Guanyin Ting, the Goddess of Mercy Pavilion, in 1761 or 62, and formed this secret brotherhood, the Tian Di Hui, the Heaven and Earth Society. They signed a blood covenant, picked one amongst this brotherhood to serve as the top guy. They established secret rituals and signs, mostly based on ancient Taoist texts and traditions. Back then, their slogan was, Obey Heaven and Follow the Way. It didn't start out as this anti-Qing organization committed to the overthrow of the dynasty or even the restoration of the Ming. These Jiebai Xiong Di, these sworn brothers, it's a theme straight out of San Guo Yan Yi, the all-time classic novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. That, more than anything else, gave these early secret societies a certain romantic and heroic aura to them. These times in the mid-19th century in China were probably even more stressful and dangerous than those days back in 221 AD when China was divvied up into the three kingdoms of Cao Wei, Eastern Wu, and Shu Han. Those times really gave a lot of inspiration to the way these organizations were set up and the way they acted. There's a couple of revisionist versions of the founding of the Tian Di Hui that says the founder was in fact the Taiwanese folk hero Zheng Changgong, known also as Kaxinga. This version maintains that he and his band of brothers united and formed the Tian Di Hui with the express intent of overthrowing the Qing dynasty. Another version says the secret societies were born out of the destruction of the Shaolin Temple and that all these surviving Shaolin monks with all their superior martial arts skills were driven underground and from there on out were committed to the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. This heaven and earth society, the Tian Di Hui, it evolved from this amorphous mass of hundreds of unrelated secret societies that had developed along the rivers between Guangxi and Fujian provinces. This region where Guangdong and Fujian come together, this was a special trading region of China. It's often referred to as the Nanyang, or South Sea Trade Zone. This area was the epicenter in China for Southeast Asian trade, and also for most of these underground societies. And it was through the vehicle of this massive trade between China, Singapore, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand, that these organizations built these efficient networks that had 101 benefits, both commercially and criminally. The Chinese diaspora of the 1840s and 50s saw many of these secret societies extend their networks wherever these adventure-seeking Chinese went, South Africa, Australia, or to the gold mines of uh, California. There were many secret societies, but it's the Tian Di Hui that sort of became the most high-profile, well-known, and largest of them all. These secret societies and their secret ways were adopted by many of the anti-Qing elements in China, and that's why the Tian Di Hui was 
closely associated with the Fan Qing or anti-Qing movement. Despite the difficult times, mid-19th century China, no need to rehash the horror of what China was going through, but despite all the negative, many enterprising individuals were amassing these huge fortunes along the commercial trade routes, which in China's case were all the main rivers and tributaries of Guangxi, Guangdong, Hunan, Jiangxi, and Fujian. It was an extremely vibrant economy flowing through those provinces. Manufacturing and service industries were popping up everywhere. This brought in vast and sudden amounts of wealth into the local economy. And where there's a large concentration of wealth and ongoing commerce, it's only natural that the criminal fringe, like viruses, would develop and prosper and feed off this element of normal society. This is their stock and trade. Honest, hard-working folks were getting ripped off and were often victims of extortion. Everyone wanted a piece of what they had. These were dangerous times. Everything that an honest man might fear surrounded him always. But if by chance an honest man like yourself went to the Tian Di Hui and you associated yourself with them, you were initiated into their ranks and participated in all the rituals, from that point on, your enemies would become the enemies of the Tian Di Hui. These rackets are as old as the Bible and are still alive today on every continent, except Antarctica, I think. The activities that these early triad forefathers engaged in were the same as anywhere in the world today. Extortion, loan sharking, intimidation, protection, gambling, prostitution, trafficking in humans, muscle, and murder for hire. It wasn't till later on that they expanded their operations into things like managing casual laborers at construction sites, money laundering, drug trafficking, you know, that kind of stuff. And as soon as the Taiping Rebellion started tearing the country apart in the 1850s and 60s, creating chaos all over central and south China, the government was helpless to do anything to protect the Xing, common people. Joining the Taipings was actually an attractive proposition for those who were being coerced to join these secret criminal gangs. At least they could hide behind the Taiping solidarity. So into the arms of either the Taipings or these criminal elements they went, sometimes both. The last couple decades of the 19th century, more and more the triads became associated with anti-Qing activities. They sort of got co-opted by Sun Yat-sen's minions to work hand-in-hand with these dedicated revolutionaries to overthrow the Qing and restore Chinese rule to China. And if you were just some guy and didn't belong to any group, you had to pay them for protection and whatever miscellaneous support might be needed in these terribly difficult times. You know, something like 20 million people died during that long conflict, the Taiping Rebellion. Wherever the government leaves a vacuum, if that shoe fits, organized crime is going to fill it. That, along with death and taxes, are about the only things you could count on for sure in this world. So the Taiping Rebellion was the perfect incubator to grow these secret societies. It was the Tian Di Hui who emerged as pretty much the most preeminent of them all. To bring this into a modern perspective, the Tian Di Hui sort of split down the middle. One part stayed legit and became the Hongmen. They are also known as the Chinese Freemasons. There's a few hundred thousand members today, and they're headquartered in the city of Kaohsiung in Taiwan. Go check out their website at 
where else but hongmen.com.tw. Now, the other part of the Tian Dihui, they don't have their own website. These evolved into the triads. Triads. How did they get that name? That's what the British police serving in Hong Kong called these guys. The triads had been a thorn in the side of the British in Hong Kong practically from the moment the ink was dry on the Treaty of Nanjing. Everything was about the number three with these guys. Three was the well-known common thread running through many of the rituals and symbols of these gangs. All these secret society members all sort of got lumped together and were referred to with the generic term triad. There were many, many different secret organizations and criminal gangs. Some got along, some were hostile towards each other. But collectively, they were called the triads. One of the most sacred aspects of the Tian Di Hui was the Chinese character Hong, second tone. This has two meanings, vast and flood. It was also the character for the surname of the Taiping leader, Hong Xiuquan. The founder of the Tian Di Hui, Ti Xi, also supposedly used this surname, Hong, as an alias in his earliest nefarious activities. It also was said to symbolize the Hongwu Emperor, the founder of the Ming Dynasty. So it's a pretty sacred character. The symbol for the Tian Di Hui, by the way, was a triangle with the character Hong in the center. The triangle, by the way, symbolized the trinity of heaven, earth, and man. So you put a character Hong inside that triangle, and then you start messing with the forces of nature. Hong was a magical word. Although it was written one way, it also sounded exactly the same, same tone and everything, as the word for the color red, Hong. There's no more special color in all of Chinese culture than red. And you didn't go mentioning this word just any old place. So they devised a way to dissect this character and break it apart piece by piece and assign a numerical value to these individual pieces. And so with these codes, you could send secret messages and assign certain numerical values and combinations to symbolize who was who in the hierarchy. Now, this might be hard to fathom if you're not familiar with Chinese characters, but the character Hong, which you can see on my website, just look at the posting for this episode, number 72, at chinahistorypodcast.com. That character can be easily broken up into four components. There's only nine strokes in this character, but if you take the three dots on the left, that is the San Dian Shui, water radical, that stands for the number three. The second secret number is at the bottom of the character, the two legs, so to speak. That's the character, eight, ba, only four strokes remaining. Where are the two remaining secret characters contained within the character Hong? The two vertical strokes and the topmost of the horizontal ones that bisect them is the character Nian, fourth tone. It means 20. This is actually an abbreviation of the character because there's another short stroke to complete this uh, Nian character. And last but not least, there's one remaining character, and that's the one remaining horizontal stroke. This is the most simple and basic of all Chinese characters, the number one. This leaves us, therefore, with the sacred three numbers, three, eight, twenty-one.
those who have studied the triads will be familiar with the numbers assigned to various members of the triads. The most famous mountain master or dragon head, 489, the top guy, the Shanju, 489, 4 plus 8 plus 9. What does that add up to? 21. All the numerical codes for these gangs, they all have some linkage to the Yi Jing or some aspect of Chinese numerology. The deputy to the dragon head, he was number 438. The incense master is number 415. He controls rites and rituals. The red poles are number 426. They're the NCOs, the enforcers, who control the soldiers. And their number, the soldiers, is 49. Because 4 times 9 equals 36, which are the number of oaths that are sworn at the initiation ceremony. In 1812... In Guangdong, you had the formation of the Sanhe Hui, the Three Harmonies Society. It was one of many mutual self-help organizations that had branched off from the Tian Di Hui, where like-minded or related parties would all bind together into one group, and there would be safety, power, and influence in their numbers. These mutual benefit groups were not necessarily involved in any crime, but they nonetheless got thrown into the same category as the criminal gangs and have been mistakenly referred to as you know, triad gangs. There were a couple game changers that happened that completely threw the established order on its head. For over a century, a system had evolved that had become quite established and mature in its old age. Well, that's what makes history so great to look back on. Suddenly an event happened that ushers in a whole new world. The first game changer was the Xinhai Revolution and the ultimate demise of the Qing Dynasty in 1911-1912. If your guiding principle was to call for the end of the Qing Dynasty, hey, it was more or less mission accomplished. So now what do you do? It was right about here when the bulk of these anti-Qing societies reverted to becoming simple fraternal organizations or self-help mutual aid societies. The Hongmen, from this point on, followed the path that kept it in the fraternal organization category up until the present day. That isn't to say no one in that organization isn't involved in any illegal activities, but for the most part, the Hongmen and what ultimately became the criminal elements of the Tian Di Hui, sort of parted ways about here. After 1911, you had members who needed a new purpose in life. And after taking stock of their skill sets and the advantages they had as an organization, crime was the choice that offered these guys the best economic future in this post-Qing Dynasty world. Now, the next big game-changer, and this one was even bigger than the one in uh, 1911, was when the Communists achieved victory in 1949. The Communist Party was very effective in shooing these triad elements out of China, and it's now, in 1949-1950, that they all flood across the border and jam into Hong Kong or sail to Taiwan, and a whole new phase begins for the triads. This is where the triads become the triads that we all know and love from all these gangster films from Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. As I said, Hong Kong had been long infiltrated by the triads way before Mao kicked them out of China. They grew slowly and fought an ongoing war of attrition with the Hong Kong police. By the 1960s and 70s, though, it was hard to draw a line where the police began and the triads ended. So infiltrated was law enforcement with 
triad elements. In 1974, the ICAC was established, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, the Lianzhang Gongshu. They presented a huge challenge to the Hong Kong triads, and their efforts have been rather successful, although by no means did they ever come close to stamping it out. But they put an end to the 20 years of the golden age of the triads in Hong Kong. You know, all it took was someone with guts to stand up and extract this cancer from the Hong Kong government rolls. There are between 50 and 60 different triads or gangs in uh, Hong Kong. In total, you have maybe 80 to 100,000 members. Of these 50 or so triads, maybe 10% of them are purely criminal gangs. The big three, by an LBJ landslide, are the 14K, the Sun Yian, and the Wu Xingwo. The Sun Yian, or in Mandarin, the Xin Yian, are the largest, with around 25,000 or so active members. They're active and very powerful, not only in Hong Kong, but across the border in Guangdong as well. They were founded in 1919 by a Chaozhounese named Hong Jin. They're involved in the whole smorgasbord of criminal gang activities. Most gangs can differentiate themselves by specializing in certain things. For example, if you want to take a shot and spend several weeks inside a 40-foot cargo container and sail across the Pacific Ocean and sneak into the United States or somewhere, the Sun Yian are the guys you want to talk to. 35, 45, 50 grand, and you could be on your way to a new life where the streets are paved with gold. The 14K, they have around 20,000 members, but there's a whole slew of 14K subgroups. The 14K and the Sun Yian, they're rivals, like Crips and Bloods rivals. If you're a drug addict and you like shooting skag in your veins, these are the guys you want to build a shrine to in your home. The 14K are notoriously big in the worldwide distribution of heroin and other narcotics. They also do the other things, but heroin is their specialty. In Hong Kong, there's tens of thousands of passengers or more per day landing at the airport. Each one could be packing 50 keys, and who would know it? The air cargo terminal handles several thousand tons a day of air freight for one or two tons of Heroin to slip through every now and then? No problem. Passing through the various border crossings from China to Hong Kong are a never-ending flow of people each day. Everyone could be carrying a kilo or two. There's trucks crossing the border constantly, all day and night, and ships coming and going from port, one of the busiest in the world. Hong Kong is the ultimate place to smuggle stuff out of China and to a port and then... Ships will then sail from Hong Kong to all ports throughout the world. The 14K was founded right after the war ended in 1945 by an old Cantonese KMT general named Kotsiu Wong. It was initially called the Hongfat Shan. They all hightailed it to Hong Kong after liberation in 1949. The 14K stands for the 14 KMT generals who were the founding members. doesn't have anything to do with that cheap jewelry. Kotsiu Wong, by the way, uh, had been the successor to uh, Du Yuesheng, the infamous green gang crime boss in Shanghai, who played such a big role in perpetrating the Shanghai Massacre. That was in uh, China History Podcast, episode 55. 
The 14K has factions galore, and there's no central authority or organization controlling the operations. They're a pretty violent lot, and the most outrageous and spectacular acts of triad violence committed around the world usually are coming from these guys. But it's the Wa, or the Hsheng-he in Mandarin, who have the longest history in Hong Kong. They were founded in Toronto, Canada in 1930 and moved their base to Hong Kong the following year, setting up in the Shamshui Po district in Kowloon. This part of Hong Kong is one of the most densely populated areas in the entire world. The Washing Wall really have a lock on the entertainment business in Kowloon. The karaoke's, nightclubs, restaurants, love motels, they extort from all the legal and illegal street hawkers, minibus drivers, and have a big piece of the action in the trade of secondhand firearms as well. That isn't to say they aren't engaged in the narcotics trade. You know, they do that too. Today, the Washing Wall, or WSW, are mostly based in Macau and across the border from Hong Kong and Shenzhen. The good thing I guess you could say about all these various triad societies was that, although they preyed on the weak and the helpless elements of Chinese society, most of the worst violence you'd read about was committed, you know, against rival gangs more than against the common man on the street. He was certainly preyed upon, but the worst atrocities involved gang showdowns, you know, between like the 14K and the Sun Yan or whoever. So if you yourself are enjoying a nice vacation in Hong Kong, chances are you aren't going to come face to face with any of these triad guys. Residents of Hong Kong, they'll know when they see some lorry illegally pulled over on Johnston Road in Wan Chai with two tough-looking shirtless guys covered in tattoos and they're unloading cargo off the back of the truck, chances are they might belong to one triad or another. You know, if you stray from all the uh, tourist spots, Stanley Market, Temple Street, Jade Market, you know, and you decide to take the MTR up to TST or Mong Kok to go buy some copy Rolexes or you want to try your luck at a massage parlor or do some illegal gambling, then you have a better than good chance to run into one of these uh, shady characters. So the triads of Hong Kong, they had a storied and romantic beginning, inspired by the secret Buddhist White Lotus Society and the legendary tales of sworn brothers fighting their sworn enemies for the control of China. It started from this base. Then the Qing Dynasty came along and became a focal point for these secret societies to rally against, although many of these groups were solely in it for the money, there were plenty of idealistic types who had their own survival and China's survival as their priorities. And when Hong Xiuquan and the whole Taiping Rebellion exploded onto the scene, desperate times required desperate measures. There was no use looking to the imperial government in Beijing for any help or support. They were up to their eyeballs in the Nian Rebellion and suppressing Muslim uprisings. People within the orbit of these trading centers down in the south, they either had to join a secret brotherhood or seek out their protection. And this swelled their ranks and wove them tighter and tighter within the daily fabric of southern Chinese society. And wherever there are large concentrations of wealth, there are always going to be parasites that try to exploit the weak points, using good old tried-and-true brute force and intimidation. These criminal gangs fanned out and seized control of certain facets of society and using their 
international network of criminal affiliations on multiple continents. These triads engage in a whole buffet table of illegal activities. And the only link that these goodfellas have with the days of the Tian Di Hui are probably just the symbols and some of the folklore still practiced today. Hollywood and Hong Kong cinema have often glorified organized crime and put some of these guys on a pedestal that they don't belong on. These triads, I guess they're just like anyone else, though, in these illegal rackets. In a way, they're just supplying something that uh, uh, there's a market for. Well, that's as far as we're going to go today. If you want to read up on the triads today and what kind of activities they're engaged in uh, all over Europe, Asia, North, and South America, you can go on uh, Google Books. And there's a lot of material on the triads and what they're up to uh, these days. For this podcast, I only wanted to focus on the past history and you know where they came from and what events helped to shape their development. I'm leaving in a few days for Frankfurt, Germany. I have that um, annual industry trade show that I have to go to. I go to it every year. My poor colleagues from Ningbo will be cutting their Chinese New Year festivities short to fly out to go work this show. If you remember last year, about this time, I was also in Frankfurt and uploaded an episode explaining the whole Chinese New Year thing. You could go back and listen to that one, episode uh, 30, if you'd like to refresh your memory about this most special of Chinese holidays. And a special happy birthday to the Podfather. Yes, our beloved Robert Packett, Professor Bob of History According to Bob. Turning the big six zero this week. If not for Bob Packett, there would be no China History podcast. So you have him to blame. 60 is a very, very important birthday in the Chinese culture. That's a birthday that actually requires some special celebrating. In the Chinese zodiac, you have, you remember, the 12 animals representing the 12 years. And you have the five elements, wood, fire, earth, metal, water. 12 years times the five elements equal 60. So when you turn 60, you know, you have a special birthday where you are reborn and you begin your second life, your second life cycle, which is, you know, usually your last life cycle. In the Chinese culture, there's some, you know, special traditions associated with this. So, Professor Bob, happy birthday and may the next 60 years be filled with the best of everything. If more than a week goes by and you don't see an episode number 73 available, uh, have a heart. That means I'm having too much fun in Deutschland and no time to do uh, a uh, podcast. Hey, anytime you want to drop me a line or say hey, uh, you can get me at laszlo at chinahistorypodcast.com. And to my listeners around the world who are celebrating the Chinese New Year, a very... Happy New Year, Happy Year of the Dragon. Xin Yan Kuaila, Gong He Xin Xi, Gong Xi Fa Cai, Long Ma Jingshan. See y'all in the Year of the Dragon, the Water Dragon, that is.